Welcome to the Life and Times of Video Games, a documentary-style podcast about video games and the video game industry, as they were in the past and how they came to be the way they are today. My name is Richard Moss, and in this episode I talk to Girl Games Inc. founder and former filmmaker Laura Groppi about her role in the 90s girl games movement. <laughs> X-ray vision, one of many superpowers you have in the game. <laughs> Not in real life. That separates the men from the boys. Your job, rescue the girl, save the world, run the bad guy out of the solar system, and regain your manhood. Not necessarily in that order. Gotta go. Hey, guy, you're the first serious gamer I've seen all morning. Check this out. Okay, okay, we'll get it for him. So, how long did he work on you? About two weeks. Young Bobby Engels has a problem. He needs to earn the respect of his peers. You are so totally whipped. I'm Brad. Let's ride a bicycle bill for two. <laughs> then we can go to the potpourri store and then go buy sheets. Would you rather be at home shooting a bazooka or watching a chick flick? Mm-hmm. Chick flick, bazooka. Chick flick, bazooka. Happy end, Brad. Who's that? <laughs> Brad. I don't know. Brad. <laughs> There's nothing inherently gendered about video games as an art or an entertainment medium. And indeed, there's plenty of evidence to show that in the early days, games were played in equal measure by men and women, girls and boys. Yet, by the middle of the 1990s, video games had become, for the most part, a boys' club. It's not that girls couldn't play games, it's that they generally weren't interested. Aside from dabbling in some Mario and Sonic platforming on their brother's game console. Games were made for, and marketed to boys, who formed an estimated three quarters or more of the game playing audience. Girls weren't welcome. Advertisements for games on TV, and especially in magazines, spoke almost exclusively to boys. They portrayed boys and men doing masculine things and talking excitedly about explosions and guns and uh, the other kind of guns. And if you're a girl who liked these sorts of things, maybe you could get by. Maybe you could turn a blind eye to the rampant misogyny and sexism you were seeing in the magazines that either didn't care or didn't believe that you existed. If you were a girl who didn't like these things, well, you were completely excluded. No girls allowed. You were half the population, but you were considered irrelevant. Because the faulty assumption was that girls didn't like games. And a quick spoiler, girls absolutely do like games. But the same rules apply, as with boys, that they only like the games that appeal to them. And for most girls, this meant that the market wasn't catering to them. Not because they were against violent games, which some of them might have been, but their disagreement with violent games was more that they wanted a stronger narrative and better characters to give a, a clearer motivation for that shooting and stabbing and punching of all these other people. And so maybe it doesn't come as much of a surprise, or or maybe it does, that one of the first efforts to invite girls back into games 
came out of Sega of America, the company behind the hyper-masculine, brashly aggressive Genesis console, which had been marketed with the playground-worthy boastfulness of Sega does what Nintendo don't. I wasn't able to interview the woman who drove this initiative, Micheline Christine Risley, before I put this episode together, though I will be talking to her very soon. But I know from what little information is around online, that during her stint in the marketing team at Sega, she convinced them to create a girls' task force to develop products for girls and bolster the female audience on Sega's game console. It worked, to some extent. Their internal research indicated that girls preferred more of a narrative, book-type approach to games, as opposed to the competitive play that boys seemed to prefer. Data that would then be supported by growth in the use of the Sega Genesis by young girls in America, from just 3% in 1993, to still not huge, but much, much better, 20% in 1995 all thanks to them publishing a a few games that were targeted at girls and adjusting their advertising slightly to to reach out to more girls. Pretty good, I'd say. The girl games movement kicked up uh, a notch further around 1995-96 when writer-slash-designer Teresa Duncan joined forces with illustrator Monica Gassou to create the acclaimed girl-focused interactive storybook, Chop Suey. And meanwhile, multiple companies sprang up almost simultaneously with the intention of making games that specifically cater to female audiences. There was Her Interactive, which later made its name for the Nancy Drew adventure games. Purple Moon, which mainly made visual novels for preteen girls. Girl Games Inc., which targeted teen and preteen girls with a variety of interactive experiences. And also Cybergirl and Girl Tech, both of which chased more of an online audience for girls. The best known of these was probably Purple Moon, which was founded by Brenda Laurel in part off the back of a multi-year research project examining girls' attitudes to games and to play and also in parts to the wave of interest and financial investment sparked by the surprising runaway success of Mattel's Barbie fashion designer CD-ROM game, which is pretty much what it sounds like, and which not only sold half a million copies in its first two months, but also managed to be one of the best-selling games of the year. It was number six on the American computer game charts for 1996. And that, I'd say, is an impressive achievement for a game aimed squarely at an audience that supposedly didn't exist. But our focus here is on Girl Games Inc., which was founded by a woman called Laura Groppy. She did it big on the indie filmmaking circuit, with a string of awards, including an Oscar for Best Short Film, four MTV Video Awards, and production credits on the winner of Best Cinematography at Sundance Film Festival in 1994. But she burned out on Hollywood and moved back home to Texas in 1994. 
where she saw an opportunity to jump on the interactive entertainment bandwagon and do some good for the world in one fell swoop. There was a lot of movement and excitement and enthusiasm of people in linear storytelling looking at this, you know, the PC and gaming as a new possibility. And so <clears throat> I remember it it made it actually easier to get into high-level meetings when you were wanting to talk to them about something other than film and television. And because nobody really understood where this was all going. And you had a far bigger abyss between, you know, Southern California, Hollywood, mainstream entertainment, and Northern California, kind of Atari roots of gaming, you know, Sega and all the more core gaming. These two worlds were not in conversation at all. And that feels so funny to think about that now. But at the time, it, there were no conferences. There was no cross-pollination of these kinds of storytelling. So it made it really easy to go in and talk to people and, and take meetings with high-level executives to say, this is really an area that's you know, going to have a, lo- a lot of growth. And, and I want to make sure that girls are included in that. Especially teen girls. Laura's main target market, which tends to be the segment of the female demographic that's most resistant to games and technology, mostly because societal and peer pressures discourage any interest they have in these areas. But Laura says her reasons for targeting teen girls were also pragmatic. There uh, was more disposable income for that segment, and they also develop, probably more importantly, developmentally, they are really hitting their stride of, of being separate, you know, having separate interests. And so at the time, I think developmentally, boys would, would choose an area of interest and, and, and do a deep dive in that, in that silo. Whereas Girls developmentally, when hitting that preteen, teen age, their interests are varied across a lot of different silos, so to speak. And so being able to design and develop entertainment content that would pique the interest around a bunch of different categories was more compelling. Girl Games Inc. staked its business on research. Great products are built with an understanding, whether explicit or implicit, of the audience that they reach. And so they wanted to make sure that they learned their audience inside out. They also had to do this. Nobody except for the people making games for girls seemed to believe that there would be a viable market for it. Which meant that their funding, the money that would allow them to make this stuff, was only going to come if their work could be tied into original research. It was the core of everything. And so, like, I I did, I mean, I opened the doors of the company with uh, a grant from the National Science Foundation to do research with Rice University. 
on understanding girls and technology. And that was, so that was like the foundational brick to wondering if this was going to be something worth pursuing that then just grew from that. So our research lab was always the core of everything. And we did slumber parties in order to get lots of girls together and have them be in their most authentic environment and have us just sort of in the background watching um, and listening and paying attention. And so, you know, sometimes that means, well, like, as you know, I mean, we ended up doing products for Mattel and we ended up doing products that might be considered very girly, but in large part, that was in response to some of what the audience was wanting. Their first project was made in collaboration with book publishing giant Simon and Schuster. They had marketed successfully books to this demographic. And so at the time, I thought, well, there's somebody over there that knows how to do this to this audience, and they have shelf space where this audience is. I mean, it was very naive at the time. But also, you know, retailers didn't even really fully know where to put all this stuff. So we were kind of, we were um, unearthing new territory because Simon & Schuster didn't even have an interactive division, really. I mean, I think there were a couple of people. And so we were doing this together in tandem and selling it at FAO Schwartz and Toys R Us and, you know, finding new ways to put this out in front of girls and really just, you know, creating the, what is now the pink aisle, because that didn't exist before. The product was a multimedia CD-ROM called Let's Talk About Me. People magazine described it as a funky feminist guide to adolescence stoked with quizzes, celebrity reminiscences, games and candid advice on everything from dating to dream interpretation. But it also, interestingly, included a diary. A place where girls really could talk about themselves. And a virtual wardrobe. There always had to be a virtual wardrobe. Again, like if you, if we have to kind of go through the museum now of the 90s and remember what that world looked like and the gaming magazines and the products that were out there. And it was so obvious that there needed to be something that, that was, you know, where she was the star of her own experience. And because that's all she cared about. And so developing something that helped her really investigate herself and experiment, you know, everything that's happening emotionally, psychologically, physically at that age, we wanted to bring that forward and then use the technology. I mean, the, the ability to take a personality quiz where, because of course it's all about you and that's all you want to know about. And then somehow that is algorithmically linking you to these other uh, people, um, women doing other things. And could you then see yourself doing that? It's, it seemed like such a no-brainer to, to design something like that. Still, no matter how much research you did and how well your designs fit the needs and wants and psychology of adolescent girls, 
if you built it, they might not come. And so they still had that, that challenge of how do you market games to an audience that's been conditioned to believe that games are not for them? It was Herculean. We were having to find unique ways to, to reach out. And to be honest, the slumber parties and the word of mouth and getting into the homes was the most effective tool. And that came about very organically because we had a client, uh, it was Hasbro at the time, they were looking at doing a line of like kind of Tamagotchi type little handheld things, right? And they needed us to, they were still in development and they needed us to put this in front of a bunch of girls like yesterday, right? So they needed it done pronto. And this is pre-internet. And this is pre-social media, pre-everything. So we just reached out to all of our girls that we had been doing research with, and we hosted a gigantic lumber party and a gymnastics place, gymnastics studio. And we built, like, bedroom sets. And so we had different themes ref- built around each one of these um, products that Hasbro was exploring. So I think we had like five different bedroom sets. We had oh, you know, well over a hundred girls at the sleepover. It was complete bedlam and chaos, and so much fun. But that was how you did the girl thing. It was so so seamless for us. It was such a like no brainer. So then we collected all that data, and now these are products that are still in development. They're not going to see a shelf for another 12 months. And we were just getting barraged in a very old-school way by phone calls from kids who knew of a kid who had been at that slumber party, or you know, parents were calling us to our little office in Austin, Texas. And we were like, who are you, and how did you find us? And so then we called Hasbro and we said, um, you might ought to think about doing this as a marketing tool because the word of mouth is crazy. And these are consumers going out of their way to find us, find our corporate number, call us. How can they get the product? So isn't that funny to think about now, like how much a consumer was willing to go through (laughs) to get something? But it just showed you how little, there was nothing out there for these girls. And so that birthed this notion of this word of mouth. And that's why in our very early research, we were like the only thing holding these girls back is some way to be sending pictures to and fro very quickly. You know, (laughs) this was pre-Facebook. So, um, yeah, that was big. Laura and her team at Girl Games Inc. sometimes had to exhibit tireless diligence of their own too. Because if you hadn't noticed yet, this Games for Girls thing, it was hard. The audacity (laughs) of what we did to build our company in the face of, you know, people not believing it it was even possible. It was kind of comical, you know, just the, the links that we would go through to get a product done and and get it to market. I mean... I remember our very first product 
Simon & Schuster was the publisher. FAO Shorts was the biggest toy store on Fifth Avenue, you know, biggest toy store in America. And it was Christmas, and I knew we needed our product to hit certain numbers or they were not going to greenlight us again for another product. And I personally, with my colleague, was selling at FAO Schwartz during the Christmas holidays, which is just insanity. You know, it's just thousands and thousands of people from all over the world with their children schlepping through this magnificent toy store. And we are selling as hard and as fast as we can. And people are asking us questions. We had a demo set up. And kids are just, you know, they've never seen anything like this. And when is the next one coming out? And so I'm like, it's coming out in 10 months. It'll be out next year. And I mean, I didn't even have a contract. And so I had, I said to my colleague, keep selling, keep selling. And I crawled underneath the table at FAO Shores and I called my publisher and I was like, I got news for you guys. You're going to have to green light the next product because I am selling thousands of people that it's happening. And so they, they did, but it was just that kind of, you know, courageous naivete <laughs> that enabled a lot of that stuff to happen. And I'm sure uh, many others could tell, you know, stories of the equivalent. Bill Games Inc. relied heavily on its contracts. And a big chunk of their money actually came from research projects for big brands. Over the years, they did stuff for Mattel, Sony, Universal, Procter & Gamble, and more. And also forged marketing partnerships with Macy's department stores and Teen Magazine, among others. Unsurprisingly, they learned a lot along the way about how girls interact with toys, games, and technology. The technology for them was a connection was a communication, was an exploration. So, and then online multiplayer, like anything that expanded their world of connectivity, they were very interested in. And I think, I think you know, open-ended gameplay where they could des- decide when they wanted to hop in and when they wanted to hop out, they needed to be engaged for so many other reasons. I remember when, before we embarked on doing a product for Barbie, we were watching girls just play with the Barbie dolls, trying to understand what's their relationship with this brand, with this character, with this story. And Barbie, for them, was just a a means to another end. And that surprised me. So... It was, it's sort of a paradox, it's sort of duplicitous to say this, but the girls, you know, Barbie was used to fit into their storylines that they were creating. They weren't diving into a Barbie storyline and finding a way, you know, and, and going that route. So that for us meant she's driving the story, the girl, the user, the player, and we need to really understand all what that all is about and unpack that. And, and I, I remember that being very much an aha moment. And then, of course, all of the creativity and just the unending, <laughs> persistent exploration of self 
that these little young women, you know, it's just, uh, it doesn't ever stop. Everything to do with themselves. And again, like I want to parenthetically state, and this is the 90s, this isn't today. Like today, the number of female gamers is off the charts, which is awesome. You know, fun games like even on the, on, uh, like on the PlayStation or the Sega or the um, the Xbox, you know, all playing Mario, playing some of the basic, fundamental, simple games. They loved those and they got brought into those because their brother had the box. That was a big key for the movement was that it was on the PC because the PC was the platform in the house that was the family platform. The gaming consoles had come up through the ranks as a male-driven entertainment device. So it came in with a gender setting on it, whereas the PC was already in that house. And so that get, you know, that allowed this sort of bubble of 90s games for girls to occur. You know, kind of the marketplace and the triangulation of the toys and the platforms and the content all coming together at this perfect storm. Working with Mattel wasn't Girl Games Inc.'s only big success. They also made a strong impression on the games industry with Teen Digital Diva, which was published by Activision in an attempt to capitalize on the post-Barbie audience, with girls given the tools and challenges they'd need to make their own versions of Teen Magazine. That product was definitely another effort at finding a way to get interactive product in front of girls. And so we felt like this was one of the leading magazines of the time. They had large distribution. And so if we could leverage that, you know, we could build the content, what we know, what we knew about what was entertaining. And then they could help us to market it and get the word out. And so it was it was probably a deeper dive than let's talk about me. It kind of took the pieces of that um incessant need to work on who you are, who you're trying to be, how to navigate that minefield of adolescence in a through the quizzes and through the storytelling. All of that was what Team Digital Diva was all about and packaging that in a way that we could then benefit from the fact that this was one of the leading magazines. It sold well enough to merit a sequel, which was considered one of 13 key products that went on to help Activision to what was, at the time, a record high revenue. Yeah, I think I remember telling Bobby Kotick because he was so scoffish about, I don't want to do a product for girls. And it ended up being a big, a big seller for them at the time because it was so off-brand for them. But I felt, I just, I respect Activision as a publisher and I just felt like they should have something to counterbalance all of it. And again, that was early, early days for Activision. So that was kind of fun. And it was a super supportive team within Activision that was, help, you know, making making this happen with us. Yeah, and uh, at the time, as I understand it, there was a lot of conflict going on uh, with regards to uh, opening the female audience into games. 
um, and a lot of people who were trying to to make games more gender diverse and more accessible to to female audiences they were getting a lot of pushback uh, were you experiencing much of that yeah i think all the time you know i think it was to be expected you know you're putting and, and so it but at the same time i'm sorry for pausing but at the same time you know we were based in austin and that was by choice because there was a large population of, you know, trained developers and gamers there. And so those guys, they, the pushback was like, Laura, we're not going to publish one of your products, but more power to you for doing it. You know, so it wasn't like they did. It's just, it was so foreign to them. And they're, you know, they were all growing up playing Dungeons and Dragons. They were just like, I don't get it. But then at the same time, there were, once you needed to get, I mean, I had to go raise all the money to start my company because there was not anybody who was really like, yeah, this looks awesome. This is going to knock it out of the park. There was none of that. But, you know, I mean, this was, do you remember the 3DO platform? Yeah. So this was during that, those guys were, they were the flavor of the day. It was very much a boys club. And I think I was very used to that in the film world. And so, you know, you just kind of took it. That's why my board of directors was like, that's why that research is key. You got to have the data to back yourself up. Laura thinks that data-driven game development they did helped to open the market up to more girls, which in turn encouraged more young women to join the industry. And I'll tell you something that was an aha moment for me recently was when I went to speak at the Computer Game Developers Conference this past year. There was a couple of us on this panel. And I went to a um, one of the sessions, and it was all about women talking about women in technology and their role in their company and sort of being, you know, parity in their work environment. And, you know, here I sat in a room in, in a room that was standing room only of women. And they're complaining about, I want more maternity leave or I want better insurance. And very important, very um, exciting to be hearing those discussions. But I walked out of there thinking, when I went to the Computer Game Developers Conference, there were five of us. There were no women to be found. And it was a rinky-dink little place out in the middle of the valley. And, and I just remember thinking, how cool is it? These women, you know, they were software engineers. They were design engineers. Like, these are all girls who grew up invited into this category, you know, because we... We did that, and now they get to ask for more maternity leave. The Girl Games movement kind of petered out around the end of the 1990s. Its loudest voices either got bought out and quietly put to pasture by Mattel, which dominated the market with its Barbie-themed games, or they fell prey to changing market conditions as CD-ROM sales fell away and the dot-com crash scared off investors. But even so... 
It had suddenly made its mark during its mere half a decade. Before the likes of Purple Moon and Girl Games Inc., or even Mattel's interactive entertainment division came along, games targeted at, or at least intended to appeal to teenage and preteen female audiences, were rare. After them, such games were still not the norm, sure. And many of the issues of diversity in game content as well as game development remained. But the games for girls had become a permanent fixture. Big publishers like Activision and THQ had come to understand that girls would buy games if the games appealed to them. And so they made a point of having girly games in their budget portfolios. At the same time, new publishers emerged, specifically targeted at female audiences of different ages. Not just young ones, but old ones as well. Often with games made in Flash and playable online in a web browser. Meanwhile, other companies entered the new casual game space with titles that appealed equally to male and female audiences, leveraging the lessons of crossover hits like Myst and The Sims. The audience for games broadened especially outside of the home console space, which I mean on PCs and mobile and within online social networks. And we're all the better for it. It's hard to pinpoint just how much of this, all of this, was a consequence of the girl games movement specifically, and how much was due to other factors. But I think we have to credit people like Laura Groppy, Teresa Duncan and Brenda Laurel, with giving the industry a shove in the right direction. CD-ROM got us to crack open the window and let some light in to, to girls and young women to say, come over here, play around in here. This is a really cool space to do your story. I've seen some people argue that the girl games movement failed because it couldn't sustain its girl-focused cottage industry for games, and because it didn't stymie the hyper-masculine tendencies of big-budget game development. But I think that might be looking at it the wrong way. Change doesn't come overnight. It's hard-fought and slow. The status quo exists, because it is easier to keep things as they are. And I'd say that the girl games movement was that first step to breaking the norms. It was, as Laura said, the moment when girls got invited back in. Perhaps they still couldn't join the club, but at least they finally had a seat at the table. They had a voice. They had champions on the inside, people who would listen to them and who would keep saying, don't worry about all that silly misogynistic advertising. These video game things are for you. And we've built you a safe space where you are welcome. And maybe that was what we needed. Maybe the games industry had to overcompensate for female audiences in order to reorient the market, to react to ever bigger breasts and manlier men and guns and explosions in games with all things pink and frilly and cute to provide that oppositional force that would make people stop and say, hey, there must be a middle ground here for everyone and to help us learn to be more inclusive.
The Life and Times of Video Games is written, edited, scored, and produced entirely by me. If you're wondering what Laura Groppy's up to these days, you can find her doing pretty much the same thing as before, except without the games. She now runs a consultancy and research firm called Girls Intelligence Agency. Here's what she said when I asked her how she made the transition. Oh, it's real simple. It's the the intelligence became the most valuable thing. So as we're doing games for girls and then the internet bubble occurs and so then you're repositioning, recalibrating, what are we? How can we still service this market? And companies are asking us to help them understand the female consumer way beyond gaming. And so increasingly we were like, huh, our knowledge is very useful and important and valuable. If you enjoyed the episode, please tell other people about it. And also get in touch with me to tell me what you like or don't like. This was the end of season one of the Life and Times of Video Games. And I'm still deciding what the long-term future of the show will be. If there even is going to be a long-term future for it. So if you want to hear more in the future, let me know. Shoot me an email on richard at lifeandtimes.games or tweet me at lifeandtimesvg or make a donation either through Patreon at patreon.com slash games or PayPal at paypal.me slash mossrc. I'd like to take this moment before we go to thank everyone who's helped me out to get to this point. To people who got in touch about audio issues that helped me make this sound better. Or to those who reached out to say they enjoyed the show. To anyone who told someone else that this is a podcast worth listening to. And to all the people who agreed to be interviewed so that I could share their stories with the world. And especially to those of you who were generous enough to put some money in. Most of all, my higher tier backers on Patreon. Wade Trigaskas, Simon Moss, and Vivek Mohan. But also everyone else. To listen to all the past episodes, or to find links to all the things mentioned here, head to the website, lifeandtimes.games. My name is Richard Moss. Thanks so much, all of you, for joining me this season. I'll talk to you next year, I hope. In the meantime, I'll leave you with this little clip from my interview with Laura Groppy. I couldn't find a place for her anywhere. See ya. I remember once there was a little girl who, uh, I can't, I can't remember the details of this, but she hacked into the back end of some little air environment that we had. And we were on the fence about like, of course we had to notify her, you know, what she was doing. She couldn't bad mouth people. You know, we had to kind of police the environment, but at the same time, we also wanted to kind of celebrate like, Oh my gosh. She's so into this that she's actually spending enough time to want to hack into it. And so we were, I, internally, we were like, oh, job well done. You know, we've encouraged the girl so much that she's wanting to be a hacker. But I don't even remember what she did. But I just I do remember us having to like reprimand her and con- contact her family and blah, blah, blah. But kind of going, OK, we're moving in the right direction. <laughs> And now we just need to push her to 
do uh, more <laughs> ethical things with her new skills. <laughs> <laughs> right, right, exactly. <laughs> exactly.